When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. It's another multi-billion pound bonanza from the government today as Chancellor Rishi Sunak prepares to fund hundreds of thousands of young people to do six-month-long work placements in another effort to kick-start the economy and to stave off the chance of 16 to 24-year-olds being left on the scrap heap because of the coronavirus. Youngsters on universal credit will qualify for payments of five and a half thousand quid over six months and employers will get a thousand pounds just for giving them the job. Of course, the move is just part of the Chancellor's summer statement today which you will hear live on this very show and is also expected to include a temporary cut in VAT for the hospitality sector just in time for me to go out for dinner tomorrow night as well as a stamp duty holiday there's also another three billion quid for green investment and upgrades to public buildings as well so this is basically uh, the five billion pounds that we were promised by Boris Johnson in the new deal uh, just last week he must be doing something right though because even the TUC's general secretary Francis O'Grady who's never much uh, of a cheery end is welcoming the stimulus as an effort to stop mass unemployment for the young. We'll be asking George Pascoe Watson, former political editor of The Sun, if it could really work. 0344 499 1000. Coming up later on, we'll be joined by historian and archaeologist Neil Oliver with his take on the week and where we go from here. And it's Prime Minister's questions as well. So Charlotte Ivers will be in with her thoughts on the performances of Boris Johnson and Sir Keir Starmer. Will he be like Eeyore again this week or will he be a bit more helpfully cheerful. We'll want your verdict of course as well because you are the eyes and ears of the Independent Republic of Mike Graham 03444991000 We're also joined by Masterchef host Greg Wallace who's been on a diet and we'll be finding out why not wearing a mask is now being compared to drunk driving. I think that's a pretty dangerous step in the wrong direction. You're listening to me Mike Graham on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is of course Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, you might be forgiven for thinking that there actually really is, honestly, a magic money tree, because every single time Chancellor Rishi Sunak looks to find some more money, uh, he doesn't have to go down the back of the sofa. uh, He doesn't have to go begging to the Bank of England. He just seems to be able to find it from somewhere. The question is, where is he finding it from and what is it going to mean for the long term prosperity of this great nation of ours? Let's talk uh, now to George Pascoe Watson, former political editor of The Sun, chairman of Portland Communications. George, very good morning to you. Uh, good morning, Mike. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. I mean, it's true to say, isn't it, that uh, it seems that Rishi Sunak has no end of sort of places to go uh, to find money when he needs it. I mean, this is a very, very large amount of money he's giving away. We know uh, from Boris Johnson's New Deal speech that this was coming. But nevertheless, um, where's he getting it all from? Well, you're right. It's uh, eye-watering sums, the type we've never seen before ever in history, actually. And of course, what it really means is a very, very, very long time with many generations to pay it off. This is the kind of money that a country with the economic strength and reputation of Britain can raise on the markets. Of course, we know that it's never been cheaper to raise money, to borrow money. Uh, But it's not free money. There's no such thing as free money. There are always costs. There are always implications. And the reality is that our future generations will have to pay it off in debt uh, and the cost of this debt. And, you know, it doesn't come from nowhere. But his bet is, of course, that this keeps our economy going. It helps us have what it's called a V-shaped recovery so we can bounce back sooner. That means business will stay afloat. That means more people will generate revenue. And that means the uh, the inland revenue will get more tax from uh, successful businesses. And we don't have to 
spend money uh, on uh, on the dog view. So that's the calculation. Um, it's a big, big step for a Conservative government, though, Mike. Well, it certainly is. I mean, it certainly makes the uh, promises by the Labour go- Labour Party in the past election uh, uh, campaign seem like a drop in the ocean. But I'm assuming that lots of other countries around Europe uh, and around the world are doing similar things because we were hearing certainly when one and a half billion was found for the arts and the theatre businesses that in in France and in Germany and in other European countries, they were actually giving even more um, to their their arts. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Countries around the world have really nowhere else to go but to dig deep, find the money and to try and encourage the economy to get back on its feet. So we're not alone in this, but uh, your point is correct. Politically, this is very difficult for a Conservative Party forever. The Conservatives have led Labour in the public perception on the handling of the economy. And uh, we know that Labour are traditionally known as being supportive of the state, the state spending money, employing lots and lots of people and looking after us all, making decisions for us. And we know that the Conservatives on the side of the free market have said, no, no, no. People should be allowed to make money. They should be allowed to make choices about their lives and not rely on on the state and other people. They should be allowed to get on with their lives. And the Conservatives lose that reputation at their peril because at the next general election, what's the distinction? What's the difference between the Labour Party under Keir Starmer and the Conservative Party if both of them are pledging to commit to huge sums of money to the state. Yes, I see that point but I also would say that it looks as though Keir Starmer has kind of been neutered in a way though, uh, in the sense that he can't attack the government for not doing enough because whenever he tries to say the government's not doing enough, Boris Johnson just comes back as he did last week uh, with the numbers of people uh, who they're keeping on furlough, the numbers of jobs that they've saved by doing so, the amount of money they've pumped in. So Labour doesn't really have anywhere to go here. That is true, that is one way of looking at it and I'm sure that is the way the strategists uh, in the government are thinking, and uh, the strength to that argument. Where does Keir Starmer go now? However, from there's a lot of people in the Conservative Party, the, the sort of fiscal hawks, as we as we say, they are very uncomfortable about what's happening, and they think that once you um, make a sort of conscious decision to get into the territory of spending money, then as a Conservative Party, you've kind of lost the discipline that you've always had, and someone has to pay for it in the in the end. And that's the critical point. You know, responsibility on money is a really big deal. The other point is, it sends sort of a message, some would say, uh, to the business community that we're much more interested in uh, keeping the state going and business is not the traditional way that we think we're, we're going to generate income from. So uh, I, there's, a, there's a bit of an intellectual battle going on in the Conservative Party about this. Yes, because when you say there will be a time uh, to pay the piper, as it were, there will be a time when the chickens come home to roost and all of those other uh, rather tiresome cliches that I could issue uh, for the rest of the time we've got here. But but what is, how does that manifest itself? How do you see them doing that? Because it's going to be very dangerous territory for any any government, never mind a Conservative government, to start taxing sort of middle income earners and the middle classes of this country. This is a really important point. You know, it, it's a it's a it's a critical point today, and Rishi really has no other option but to do what he's doing. But I think next year, 2021, if the recovery begins to show signs of being successful, I'm afraid that 2021 will be a very difficult year where the government will have to start uh, bringing higher taxes on uh, people who are middle or even higher earners, taxes on businesses, more green taxes. And, and I would say the critical thing is this. This economy was doing exceptionally well up until January, February of this year, only a few months ago. All the numbers were going in the right direction. New jobs had been created. Wealth was beginning to be generated in this economy. Things were doing very well. The economy was not the problem. And what I think is uh, in the danger of talking about bouncing back and building back better, which is the prime minister's mantra, suggests that there was an economy problem. There wasn't. And the danger is we throw out all the good stuff that was going uh, in some pursuit of trying in some way to out-labour the Labour Party when it comes to, to public spending. Yeah, I mean, I'm always slightly worried about green investment, but it says here uh, that Sunak is going to be giving three billion pounds away uh, in a green investment package, which much of which will be spent on improving energy efficiency in public buildings. Now, I suppose that is um, a worthy aim and it's probably something that's worth doing. Um, But Boris Johnson was talking about electric planes the other day. He was talking about he does seem to have uh, an obsession um, with sort of cleaning up the, the climate, doesn't he? 
Well, you can't fault anybody who wants to clean up the climate. I mean, whether you're well, a, a skeptic or <laughs> <laughs> whether you're a skeptic uh, or, or, or even a denier, the, the reality is there are some things which can definitely be done better. And I know that insulation, both domestic in your house and also in offices, is a really big deal. And you can actually save a lot of money by uh, improving that. that that's, I don't think that's an issue. But what I do think is um, the idea of electric planes, I know for a fact, has only ever been proven to be possible on short-haul domestic flights. Mm. Uh, and the reality is this technology is a very, very long way away, as are lots of other technologies. That's not to say we shouldn't pursue them. But the, 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 the green lobby has to accept that it is extremely expensive for all of us. All of us are having to pay through our... Uh, through our taxes and through our bills to generate uh, a green economy. It doesn't come without cost. And these things get forgotten about by politicians. Yes. When well, also, that. particularly when you see the demonisation of motor vehicles, as, as we see in London with Sadiq Khan, who's basically trying to introduce walking and cycling and electric scootering as a substitute for actually driving. You know, when people need to deliver goods, when people need to uh, drive taxis and, and carry people around in them, you know, it's a nonsense to then have this kind of relentless uh, charge towards a particularly um, green economy because we don't know yet whether that's the answer anyway. Well, first of all, um, we could be completely overtaken by hydrogen vehicles. Uh, so electric becomes a, a sort of skip in the, in, the, in the step. We don't know how we're going to afford to generate the electricity required to power this new wave of vehicles, which, by the way, none of us can afford. Um, you know, the only way of generating that uh, electricity is to have more nuclear power in the mix, which I'm massively in favour of. Um, but, of course... People are struggling with, with allowing that to happen. And so the the idea that politicians are jumping at demonizing, as you say, hardworking men and women as they try and get around town and do their jobs and get from A to B, you know, and, and uh, we're all demons because of this. We all need to walk and cycle. I see even today, Mike, um, huge swathes of ordinary roads here in London uh, being ripped up and cycling lanes being put in, causing massive traffic congestion. Yeah all of which is bad for our lungs and, and uh, not clean. It's fanciful. And right. It's but it's all being, but it's all being uh, done, George, in the name of the green environment and a better environment for people to walk around in and, and for fewer people supposedly to drop dead from pollution. But in fact, they're creating more pollution. So it seems to me that, that Boris should move away from that uh, and actually move more with the people, the ordinary working people of this country, uh, who realise that, yes, they can do their bit, but they still have to get around. But what, uh, what we don't know, Mike, what we don't see, Mike, is that uh, this Prime Minister does a lot of focus grouping and polling of public attitudes on a daily basis. And, uh, and that is all pointing in the same direction. It appears that the public's view is we want more clean green, not less. And that's triggering this view. And also all politicians feel a little bit like supporting the NHS that all they can ever say is positive things about the green economy. So I don't think it's going to be likely that we're going to turn that clock back now. I think the trick today, by the way, for the Conservative Chancellor and the Prime Minister is to remind people that all of this stuff, the big spending on the state, uh, big spending on green, is not at the cost of hardworking uh, men and women up and down the country who do rely on, on their cars, on their vans, on their trucks, on traditional ways of going about work. And uh, if they if they lose that argument, then I'm afraid the danger is in, in trying to pursue this green ambition of uh, a really big state as well. I think that that's bad for the Conservatives. Yes, quite. And what do you make of this uh, a sort of young person's giveaway? Uh, 16 to 24 year olds being given the opportunity to have a job for six months, five and a half thousand pounds they'll get uh, as part of a payment of sort of minimum wage, which could be topped up by other employers. Do you think employers are going to welcome this? Because, I mean, clearly it's a good idea to get kids onto a, a career ladder of some kind, particularly if they're already on universal credit. Um, but what's going to be the reaction of employers, do you think? Yeah, listen, I do. I do think a lot of employers will take that up uh, as an offer. I, I think that uh, there is a general sense in the business community that people want to help. People feel that they have a responsibility and they have an opportunity to take advantage of these offers and to try and get young people uh, into the work stream. And some of these jobs, I think, will probably translate into more permanent jobs after six months. I hope they do. 
we do need to give people the opportunity of a positive future. We can't have a generation of people uh, left abandoned. We do need to give people hope. And I think all the business uh, companies that I advise are definitely in the mood for seeing how they can help and what, what, uh, how they can reach out to people and, and help them. And what about those businesses that you advise, George? Because I'm always interested in, in what they have to say to you as far as the recovery is concerned, as far as the length of time uh, we will have to wait before, for example, we see tourism returning to the UK and not just to London, but to other parts of the country as well, particularly in Scotland, where it's very important for the community up there uh, to get incoming money from, from those who visit. Um, what are they saying about the time frame on all that stuff? In, in broad terms, people are... Uh, cautiously optimistic is how I would put it. They feel that they have taken many steps over the last few months to deal what, with what is inevitably the biggest shock they will have to deal with. Uh, it's not by any stretch of the imagination done, but they've taken steps uh, and they're hoping that uh, people will have the confidence to get back and start spending money and start buying their services and beginning o over time probably to, between now and the end of the year to give some sign of confidence that uh, people are prepared to buy and interact. That's the hope. Um, whether a second spike in COVID uh, during the winter flu period uh, happens, I think is, it's more likely that it'll be small pockets here and there. And that hopefully will give people the confidence to carry on doing their business and being cautious and safe, uh, but also active. Yes. That's what we hope. But of course, it's a big looking, it's a big crystal ball moment and nobody really knows what's going to happen. Yeah, I mean, it feels to me as though there needs to be almost a kind of... Uh... Uh, a trickle effect that turns into a, a kind of waterfall, you know, that something starts to move and then suddenly it all starts to move in the same way that, that people started going out to beaches and things like that, probably, what, about six weeks ago now. Um, and now the general feeling is that people, there's lots more people out and about. You know, we were able to go out for dinner now. Uh, I'm going to do that on Thursday with some uh, the trepidation, but some great joy as well, because it'll be the first time I've actually had somebody cook something for me in a restaurant uh, since about the middle of March. Um, but, you know, as that ha begins to happen, you'll see more and more of it happening. Um, and, and suddenly there will be you'll suddenly start seeing tourists back in London. People will start traveling again. You know, I think it's a, it's it's almost more uh, of a mindset than anything else. It's definitely a mindset. Uh, and we look for that optimism. We look for people to have the confidence to go out. That's what the prime minister has been trying to balance is this encouragement for people to be confident enough to leave their homes and go and try restaurants, go and try shopping, go and doing the things we used to do, whilst at the same time being safe enough and responsible enough that if they get symptoms, to actually check themselves in mm. and have a test and self-isolate. That's the trick. The danger, of course, is we glibly forget all the many, many hundreds of thousands of people, perhaps millions, who very sadly will be furloughed or their jobs will be cut. And that's inevitable, I'm afraid. And we can't forget those people. And I think that Rishi Sunak today, the Chancellor, is focused very hard on keeping those people uppermost in his mind because we need to find a way of retraining them, reskilling them, a way of getting the, the business community to find openings for those people so that the business leaders too need confidence that they're going to be, um, they're going to have a business, they're going to have trade, that they need more people to, to be employed. That confidence is, is the vital thing. And we need the Chancellor today, I think, to give us a sense that there is positivity and, and, and hope for the future. I think that's absolutely right, George. Thanks very much indeed. George Pascoe Watson, their former political editor of The Sun, chairman of Portland Communications, uh, with a message for Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor. Uh, he needs to offer confidence, he needs to offer certainty, and he needs to offer a certain kind of um, consistency as well uh, in the way that he's propping up various bits of Britain propping up various bits of the economy, providing money uh, to the people who need it, but not forgetting those people who also need the money who haven't yet been given any help because there's still quite a few of those people out there uh, and we will always do our best to try and get that and bring that to the attention uh, of the powers that be. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. We love to hear from the people of the world because the people of the world have the common sense. Some of these politicians are in cloud cuckoo land. I mean, if they're going to convince me that my bills are going to go down just because I've got a couple of solar panels on the roof. Really, I don't think so. Let's talk to Mark Dolan, a man that may or may not have solar panels on his roof. Talk radio presenter, of course. He's on Friday Drive. He's on Saturdays, 10 to 1 as well. Uh, and, of course, he appears on Plank of the Week from time to time. Mark, a very good morning to you. Top of the morning, Mike. Great to be uh, in the... Uh 
world of common sense. Well, indeed, absolutely right. Now, it looks to me as though you have not yet availed yourself of the barbers uh, because you're still looking like a wild man. No, that's exactly right, because I uh, was going to make an appointment with my local hairdressers and basically I saw through the window and he appeared to be in one of the kind of hazard chemical suits, (laughs) almost like an astronaut. And I thought, uh, are you not aware of the fact that supermarkets have been open and full for the last three months? Right. Uh, No one's been wearing masks. No one has sanitized their hands. Uh, please calm down a mm. little bit. So I'm going to wait until normality resumes, Mike. Do you know, I'm, I'm with you. I'm with you on that. I don't really fancy going into a barber's shop and sitting there as if they're about to take my kidneys out. You know, um, <laughs> that seems to be the problem. But this is what I want to talk to you about today, because according to the Royal Society, uh, which, which sounds like some kind of odious, uh, overbearing kind of Stasi-like organisation, yeah. uh, not wearing a mask in public should now be seen as taboo. Uh, It should be as bad as drink driving. I find this very disturbing. Yes, I mean, there is a basic human right issue here. We live in a free country. I live in Crouch End, Mike, not Chernobyl. I I thought so. And I understand that, you know, if face masks were definitively proven to slow the rate of infection down and we were in the absolute grip of a second wave, then I'm like, bring it on. And yes, legislate if we know for sure it'll make a difference the science on masks is flaky at best opinion is divided but i think as i mentioned at the beginning of our conversation that in the people's republic of mike graham that ultimately common sense will prevail at talk radio as you know we don't wear masks in the office or in the studio but if you get into an elevator which is a confined space then it's 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 worth it's worth um you know reducing that potential for uh, infection in a, in a small area. Um, so I think that basically it's a big problem um, to make us do it. And the other thing, Mike, is this. I don't want to become, when coronavirus is over, one of those mask countries. Mm. You know, so many nations in the Far East, uh, Japan, China, Taiwan, uh, South Korea, have been wearing masks for years right. because it's, it's a cultural thing and it's to do with spreading other things well, like given, given that they've managed to pro- the flu. Given that they've managed to produce uh, the coronavirus in China and they now seem to have rediscovered the bubonic plague. I don't blame them for wearing masks, to be honest. <laughs> well, no, that's right. But ultimately, what will happen is that you'll just have a culture where we're all in fear of every germ, of every bacteria. Right. The bottom line, Mike, is that we are all full of bacteria. Our bodies are consumed with viruses and bacteria. In fact, I was listening to talk radio yesterday and one of the guests on Ian Collins's show um, said that a lot of people have got the SARS virus in them, really? just dormant, mm. you know. So ultimately, we are um, organic biological creatures. We have an immune system, Mike, which is there to help us fight infection. And I, I think we mustn't become so hysterical. I really don't want a lasting legacy of the pandemic to be that we've got to wear masks no. when this is over. No, because um, also if we're driven to sort of tell other people what to do, I mean, you say we live in a free country. A free country should mean um, within, uh, obviously, the rules of the law of the law of the land that you should be able to do whatever you want. And if you want to wear well, a mask walking right. down the street, fine. I'm not going to shout at you or look at you or laugh at you, but you should not also be making me wear one. No, I think it's discretion. And I don't know if you've noticed this, but there are drivers just on their own in the car wearing a mask. Yeah. It's like, who are you going to catch coronavirus from on your own in a Nissan Micra? I I really need some help. I mean, somebody said to me they might well be uh, Uber drivers and stuff, but I'm not sure they all are because they don't appear to be in those kinds of cars, you know? Uh, no, I think that's right. I think we need to collectively grow a pair. The bottom line is that we are winning the war against coronavirus. The numbers are coming down. I actually was delighted to see the government being uh, slightly reckless with uh, Super Saturday. And those photos in central London of people gathering, I thought, was a tremendous gift to the scientific community mm. because it's an experiment, isn't it, Michael? Yeah. Central Soho was a gigantic Petri dish on Saturday. Yeah. If in two weeks time there is no spike... We are on our way out of this. Exactly right. I think that's very, very true. But, you know, I don't know why we have to have this kind of social need to uh, to look down on people. You know, it's something that I've noticed since the Brexit refer- referendum. You know, Ramona's like uh, Jolien Moron, the barrister, looking down upon anyone who's a Brexiteer on the grounds that they're thick racists. You know, people who think they're cleverer than we are, telling us all what to think, telling us how to behave, telling us, you know, what to watch, what to listen to, uh, and yep. what to see and what to read. I mean, I'm not interested in that. Uh, no, and I think actually I might have to 
give some due credit to Michael Gove for his remarks about experts. And this was, of course, uh, before the Brexit referendum. Yeah. Now, that was a, you know, a pretty incendiary thing to say. But ultimately, the people uh, weighed the pros and cons of Brexit yeah. and they decided that we would leave. I happen to trust the British people, even though I'm one of those Ramonas. Mike, yeah. I had to, yes, but you're not one of those Ramonas who's ever felt superior to those who have a different view. You're one of the well, reasonable exactly. Ramonas. Of course, and this organisation who are telling us that um, not wearing a mask is worse than drink driving or murder or something. Right. Uh, that word royal in the, the, the name of the organisation, that is a red flag already because they have sort of a very unfounded integrity just because of, you know, invoking the Queen's good name. Yeah. The bottom line is, as we've said, common sense will prevail. Do you remember when the government guidelines came out at the second set of guidelines and it was stay alert and Twitter went nuts because they didn't know what that meant. And Beth Rigby wasn't sure whether we could go sunbathing on a Sunday or a Monday. Well, the British people had no problem with that. So, A, don't underestimate our intelligence and common sense. And B, do not create a decree, a law around something that is scientifically unfounded mm. because then you will lose the public. I mean, the bottom line is you just have to look at the numbers. The cases are coming down. The tragic deaths are coming down. Uh, I would say more of the same, please. Yes, absolutely right. I mean, things have got so bad, right, that on a day that the Chancellor is giving away five billion quid, the Daily Mirror is only interested in the fact that he's got a Bluetooth coffee mug, uh, which costs £180. He's giving away five billion, guys, you know. This is also, by the way, on the day the Daily Mirror announced that they're sacking 550 people. Yeah, how kind, how yeah. nice of them. Nice. Ultimately, Mike, I think that the Chancellor has been one of the stars of this coronavirus pandemic. Hasn't he? He has written a blank cheque to prop up the British economy, a very unconservative thing to do. But at this point, ideology has gone out the window. It is just a case of damage, limitation. It's the he new conservatism, with... Mark. Well, maybe. <laughs> the guy has spoken with, with uh, confidence, uh, surety, He's been articulate. He's been coherent. And ultimately, I think, you know, history will be very kind to Rishi Sunak. He can have as many expensive mugs as he likes, Mike, if he's going to protect jobs, uh, support businesses and preserve livelihoods. Ultimately, as long as he doesn't claim for it on his expenses, obviously. Well, maybe not. Well, do you know what? No, I will write a personally. I will send that guy a postal order for 180 quid. If he can do something to mitigate damage to our economy, because that would be money well spent. I mean, there's two things here. You can the send me a check for 180 quid and I'll buy a mug as well. That's a good idea. Look, the bottom line, Mike, is that, <laughs> you know, he's an accomplished guy. We've got the politics of envy here. The bottom line is that he actually comes from an Asian background. His family are self-made. He is an example of a great British success story. And all the Mirror and the Guardian can do is attack him for having a posh mug. And by the way, I've done the maths on this, Mike. If you go to Costa, nothing wrong with Costa, by the way, but if you go to an outlet like that and have a coffee every day, you will have paid for that mug in less than three months. Right. It's a lot more environmentally friendly because you've not got the disposable mugs. So in fact, the guy is the biggest sort of eco-liberal. You yes. Well, also on the like. grounds that I've done a quick scientific survey as well, uh, on the grounds that he's going to keep the same mug of tea for three hours, I think, because uh, it stays warm for that length of time. Think of the number of kettles that won't be boiled as a result of that, thereby saving uh, megawatts of electricity. Well, definitely. All they need to bring out now for you and I, Mike, is one of those uh, pint glasses, which keeps the beer cold. Yes, that's exactly right. That's what we could do with, actually. I'm just looking for a copy of the Daily Mirror because but the there's only, thing there's only one thing to do with the Daily Mirror, Mark, right? Oh, yeah, go on, Ed. I'm afraid it's Woo! going into the bin because they don't know anything about science, right? Mark Dolan, thank you very much indeed. Uh, this is Talk Radio. <laughs> Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, yesterday we talked a lot um, about the uh, 15th anniversary and the commemoration uh, of 7-7. 
uh, that terrible day in London when uh, bombs were blown up in four different locations. 52 people were killed, innocents who had just got on a bus or a train to go to work. One of the things that we didn't really talk about last week in any great uh, uh, order, and, and it was something that I meant to really address because I saw a tweet, funnily enough, um, from Tony Parsons, of all people, uh, who used to write for The Mirror, um, about the Battle of the Somme, because it was the 104th anniversary of the Battle of the Somme, which was a First World War battle, for those of you uh, who don't know. Let's talk to Neil Oliver now. He wrote a column about it in the Sunday Times at the weekend. Neil, a very good morning to you. Welcome back. Oh, good morning to you too, mate. Thanks for- Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, Relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Yeah, not at all. I mean, it's a terrible, terrible day. Uh, this first day that you describe, um, where nearly 20,000 <clears> British soldiers were killed um, just on the first day. Of the, you can't really quite imagine the horror, can you? It, it's unspeakable and un, unthinkable. Uh, it still is, probably always will be, the bloodiest uh, day in the history of the British Army. Uh, the, the British Army lost uh, in excess of 54,000 casualties, of whom more than 19,000 were, were killed in action uh, on that day. Uh, by the time the Battle of the Somme was over, it dragged on for, for weeks and months. By the end of it, uh, there were a million dead, uh, in, including about half a million uh, on, the, on the British and, and French side. And a million dead. A, a, a million is a word we've become familiar with, I suppose, in the, in the 20th and the 21st century, you know, people earning millions of pounds and such. But it's a number we take for granted. It would take you 23 days to count from one to a million. It's a big number, uh, and, and the idea of that loss. And, uh, and on that, that first day when 19,000 were killed, and the, the great monument that, that many people will have visited at Thiepval uh, is no, it's known as the, as the monument to the missing of the Somme, uh, because there are, there are so many names, thousands and thousands of names on it, men and boys who have no known grave, and their names are simply listed there in, in stone. Uh, and the idea of missing, it, it kind of it plays a bit of a sleight of hand. You're invited to think that these men turned up for duty that morning and, and stepped out onto the fields of Picardy and just disappeared. Mm. And it, maybe it's just easier to, to think of it that way. But the, the reality is that they're, they're not missing. Uh, the, 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 the army knew exactly who was killed. The problem they had was up until the song, uh, soldiers were only issued with a single dog tag, you know, an, an identity tag. And in the event of a soldier's death, the, the, the dog tag was taken away from him, from his body, so that they, so that they could stop his pay. Because right. the, the British Army didn't pay dead soldiers. But because there were so many killed on that first day, and, and in the terrible days that followed, the, the burial parties got behind. And so you had mountains of butchered corpses and pieces of corpses, all separated from their dog tags. And so although the army knew who was dead, they could no longer put names Against each individual, and so the and, and so the legend of the of the missing of the psalm was born. And after that, after that terrible uh, incident, you might say, soldiers were issued with two dog tags, and, and are to this day, so that in the event of their death, one is taken away to stop a pay, and the other remains with the body, so they can be mm. so they can be. 
It's incredible, isn't it? Because one of the things that I suppose we don't say so much about the First World War as we do about the Second is is that you know uh, we we fought together. I mean, Churchill's name has been in, obviously in the uh, in the news an awful lot lately because of the statue conversations and all of that. People always say we had to stop Hitler, but the First World War doesn't appear to have that kind of narrative, does it? Because looking back on it, um, it looks like a terrible waste of everybody's life um, who went to, to that part of France and died. Yes, I think our, 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 uh, our understanding, our, our perception, our memory of the First World War is very much uh, affected by the way in which the, the war poets uh, memorialised it and, and, and wrote about it while they were actually going through it. Uh, and, you know, there, there is, you know, this, this uh, pervasive uh, uh, sadness, this grief without end that, that hangs, you know, like a black cloud across the First World War. Uh, it, you know, the, the, the sadness is, is unbearable. Although for me, I, I, and I'm not alone in this, there, are, there is a school of thought that says that the years from 1914 to 1945 might almost be considered as one great apocalypse mm. with, a, with a 20-year gap in the middle. Uh, we never came to terms with one another properly after the First World War, and the hate and the heat of it, just smouldered for 20 years and then caught light again in 1939 and, and, and fought on until 1945. And for me, I mean, this is this is very much my, I'm, I'm not claiming this is, you know, this isn't, you know, uh, accepted historical thinking at all, but it, it seems to me that as a species, as a, as a, as a people, uh, as the peoples of the world, we haven't got over what we did to each other in the 20th century. Um, we, we inflicted so much unbearable hurt on ourselves and on each other. And we harvested millions. And then after the Second World War, the horror continued with, with the gulags and, the, and, and, and all, the, all the attendant horrors in, in, in China and in Cambodia. And we harvested millions and millions, hundreds of millions of people. And, you know, the Romans, the Romans, you know, had a tactic called decimation, which was, you know, if they, they knew, they had calculated that if they if they killed one in ten of an enemy, that they would never have to deal with that enemy meaningly, meaningfully again, because they would have they would have caused so much hurt, not just on the living population, but on the generations to come, that that that, that those population they wouldn't have to worry about them. They were dealt with. They had been decimated, and I think something like that happened to the peoples of Europe and of the world between you know, 1914 and 1945, we, we hurt ourselves and each other so badly that we, the generations now are the damaged children of, of terribly unhappy parents. Yes. I don't, yeah. wish to, I don't wish to quote from a movie to, to a, a renowned historian, but there's a line in Gladiator where one of the Roman soldiers says to, uh, um, says to um, uh, the, the, the main protagonist, what, um, what a terrible thing it is when a people don't know they've been conquered. You know when they're sort of in Germania fighting the uh, fighting the savages, right? And Russell Crowe's standing there, and he agrees with him. and And I take your point about that because what what was it about the psyche? Do you think of the people of the world, or certainly the people of Western Europe, during sort of 1918 and 1939 that that caused the Second World War to then kind of happen? Because I asked that question in the context of where we are now today. We we, we, we didn't come to, we didn't come to terms. Uh, the, the way in which the, the peace uh, was was uh, uh, prevailed uh, was was not was not thought through, and and there was too much unhappiness and, and unbearable suffering left behind that, that was never dealt with, and and other forces were able to take that that unhappiness and mould it and, and breathe oxygen onto it and make it catch fire again uh, in the second conflagration, which was the Second World War, and. We haven't. What, what I'm what I'm deeply saddened and and worried about is that we we forget how close war is. War is almost a natural state of human beings, and we've we've lived in relative peace in much of Europe for a long time, and we can trick ourselves into thinking that it won't happen to us. You know, we had famously you know and the English Civil War in this in the 17th century, but it's really better known more accurately described as the War of Three Kingdoms because mm. it, it swept up Scotland and Ireland and England into a terrible maelstrom of destruction. And then, you know, the, then, uh, 
you know, America had its civil war in the 19th century. And then, and then we saw the, the civil war in Bosnia in the, in the 1990s. And, and then Syria has a civil war now. And we look on and think, well, that, that can't happen here because we live in a civilised and peaceful society. And that's the most lethally dangerous misconception that people can have. Mm. What I feel, the lesson we haven't learned is that every moment of every day, war is there beside us, separated by a gossamer sheet that, you, that we can so easily put our hands through and there will be, we will have war again or, or, or violence of some sort or another. And it, it comes when, when populations can't talk. You know, when the dialogue breaks down, either between nations or between individuals, if there's if there can't be if there can't be speech, there will be there will be violence, and it's a terrible terrible uh, negligence for us to be thinking that we can carry on in this way, that we, we can carry on uh, being cruel to one another and silencing one another and preventing people from from speaking honestly, mm. standing up, speaking the truth. If we think there won't be consequences for that, then we're deluded. Yes, I think that's a very good point to make because I was in Bosnia uh, for a bit of uh, 1993 um, and a bit of 1994 and um, I was appalled at what I saw because basically we all stayed, there wasn't really places for us to stay. You were staying in central Bosnia, we stayed in people's houses. I stayed in this woman's house who was um, a Croat and she had a postman uh, who was a, um, a Muslim and she shopped the postman to the local militia and he was shot dead. And when I asked her about it, she said, I said, why, how long have you known this guy? She said, oh, I've known him about 10 years. He's been my postman for 10 years. And I said, well, why did you shop him to the militia? And she said, well, because he was the enemy. And she said it as calmly as that. I, th I think this is another unfounded, unscientific theory of my own, but I think it's, it seems to me there's no, it's no coincidence that that after all these weeks and months of lockdown and fear of uh, this virus, that, that this has been followed by this uh, terrible time of, of you know, internecine and, and, and inter-community strife. Because this virus is, is especially insidious because it has encouraged us, or it has left us really no option, but to look on one another, even our closest friends and members of our own families, as potential risks of contagion. Mm. You know, we're wearing masks, we're not hugging mothers, we're not talking to our, our, our grandparents. We're separated and, and, we've, and we've begun, we've had to see, never mind strangers in the street, as, as potential sources of an illness that could kill us. And biologically, evolutionary, in evolutionary terms, we have uh, very useful mechanisms as, this, as the animals that we are, uh, where we feel, we feel uh, disgust, actually, for, for strangers, other animals like ourselves who we've never met before, because they might, they might give us a disease. It's ancient. It was well demonstrated in the Americas when, uh, when the Portuguese and the Spanish turned up in the, in the 15th and 16th centuries, and up to 90% of the, of, the, of the American indigenous populations in some areas died of diseases from Europe for which they had no defense. So it makes sense that we feel a, a sense of people, of people we don't know as being un, unclean, mm. as a potential source of contagion. And I think the months have, have triggered something like that in us, where we're even less tolerant of one another than we were before. You know, the, 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 thin, the thin tissue of civilization that, under which we thrive has been rent mm. and torn and damaged. And furthermore, when, when, when a body, when you or I suffer a virus, the body sometimes in the aftermath of defeating the virus, it can have an autoimmune reaction. Quite often people will have a virus and then in the aftermath, their immune system, which is there to protect them against harmful you know, things from outside, begins to damage the healthy tissues of the body. You know, so things like alopecia, reactive arthritis, rheumatoid arthritis, these autoimmune conditions are sometimes triggered by a virus. And it feels to me as though as a population, we're almost... If, if the population of Britain was a body, we're having some kind of autoimmune reaction mm. now. We're, we're, we're turning on each other in the same way that a body turns upon its healthy cells. And I think we need to take a breath and draw back and see the, the dangers of this way that we're treating each other at the moment. We need more 
uh, kindness and tolerance we've got to we've got to reach deep within ourselves as individuals and find that ability to to be kind and to be tolerant to one another because that which is afflicting a few people high profile people maybe at the moment will eventually in the way of an autoimmune condition that runs out of control it will eventually get us all and we don't want to follow that path we need to get back and it's i'll say this every opportunity that i get it's central to our survival that people find and it's it's a big ask although it's simple that enough people have to draw breath and stand up straight and tell the truth every every one of us knows the difference between right and wrong we learn to be fair at our mother's knees and at the nursery school and in the playground we know what it is and we're not being fair to each other yes. and we're too many people are standing by while terrible unfairness is being inflicted upon other people um, and i i for one i'm just one person but i will not uh, be quiet and i will not be silent where i see something that i feel has to be said and we've released the kraken yeah but don't you think, Neil, as well, that there's this kind of a new right and wrong being created? I mean, this morning in The Times, a story um, coming from the Royal Society, which is riddled with supposedly eminent scientists, right, saying that not wearing a mask should be as taboo as drink driving. Now, I mean, that to me is trying to set a new right and wrong, trying to say to you that basically you are wrong not to wear a mask. Now, of course, there are certain reasons why in certain situations you might want to follow guidelines and wear a mask. But this is also a free country. And I don't see that I should be feeling in some way as if I'm, you know, the devil incarnate because I'm walking down the street not wearing a mask. No, in principle, Mike, I stand full square beside you. Uh, there, are, there are consequences about having a free society. Um, and there are consequences to freedom of speech. Uh, and in, in some ways... By, by wishing to live in a free society and wishing to have freedom of speech. In certain ways, we make the, the, the civic square less safe for ourselves because we're, we're opening it up to things we don't like or agree with. If we truly believe in freedom, you know, everyone has to be free, whether, you know, and people have to be free to think, free to express their thoughts uh, and, and free to function. Or... Or you, or you cross a line into 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 a society where you surrender those rights, you know, in a kind of a Hobbesian way, where mm. you accept, you know, increased limitations on your freedom, so that your person and your property is increasingly protected. But you know, free, freedoms uh, is a is is volatile stuff. You know, it's a uh, it, 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 it's um it's dangerous magic. Freedom. Yes, and uh, I, th and I think it's also it doesn't make us all safe at all times. It, if we want to be free then we accept risk. You're saying, I am, going to, I am going to be alive to the possibility of the unknown. And some of it I will like, and some of it I won't like. But, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, in, that, it's in that atmosphere of, of partial chaos that, that genius thrives. You know, the, the ideas that, that eventually take shape and, and change the world, you know, they're pinging about like particles in an infinite universe, bouncing in all directions. And some some of it's good and some of it's not yeah. good. But, but is it not also? But is it not also possibly Neil, as we saw perhaps during those two world wars, when evil thrives as well? Oh, one hundred percent, Mike. If if you if you get to the point where uh, people are 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 frightened into silence, uh, and they're and they're frightened to be outside of their doors, doing and speaking as they please then to, to some extent the game is already over at that point. You know, it, it's estimated that in, 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 Eastern, in East Germany, under the, under the Stasi, the secret police, that by the end of it, one in four people were employed as informants mm. by the Stasi, which means that in a typical family, that one of the family members sitting at the table having dinner was weekly informing on the other members of the family. And so, the, the, so that society was policing itself. Yeah. Policing one another. Children were policing parents. You know, parents were policing relatives and neighbours. Uh, and it's that's that is where that is where the danger is. You, you know, and the, 
the, the, you know, it's, it's hackneyed now. It's cliched when we say about the, the, the men and, and, and the people who, who gave their lives in the First World War and the Second World War, they died for freedom because, you know, the, the totalitarian regimes that were being challenged, if they had got the upper hand, would have taken away the freedoms that we take for granted. You know, and it, it's, it's repeated over and over again. And every Remembrance Day, we're supposed to, we are supposed to remember that these people died for our freedom. Yeah. You know, I quoted in that, in that uh, column that you mentioned that I wrote on Sunday, you know, there's a, a wonderful poem by Humbert Wolf, a, a requiem, a soldier. Uh, and he imagines the young, the young men and boys as, as golden youth. And, and, they're, and he can hear them. And, you know, and, they, um, and they, they cry to one another, are they young with our youth, gold with our gold, my brother? Do they smile in the face of death because we died? And we have to ask ourselves what people died for in the 20th century. And as far as I am concerned with my amateurish, you know, limited understanding of history is that the great sacrifice was made for freedom. Freedom to think, freedom to speak, freedom to stand up straight back in a public space and say what you believe to be true and have that accepted as part of the great discourse of a civilised community. And wow. as we drift closer and closer to a situation where people are frightened into silence, then totalitarian tyranny has already won without a shot fired and without a, a sword being drawn. Incredible. Well, amen to that, Neil, is all I can say. I don't know where the time goes, but but we're out of time. Um, another fascinating discourse, another fantastic conversation. Uh, we'll see you same time next week. Neil Oliver, uh, what can you say about that? If that doesn't make you think, I don't know what does. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Greg Wallace on the other line, Master Chef host, of course, Celebrity Master Chef tonight. Um, but Greg, today, is not talking about that. He's talking about losing weight and getting healthy and eating right uh, and looking great, actually. Greg, a very good uh, morning to you. Morning, my friend. Now, good listen, um, I don't know how you've done this, but you do look remarkably slim and remarkably well. Well, I've lost four stone. Wow. Uh, over this. And I, well, I'll tell you how I did it. I did it gradually and safely. Right. And I didn't follow any crazy diet by starving myself twice a week or never eating a potato mm. or cutting out carbs or even sticking a carrot in my ear every third <laughs> Wednesday and standing on one leg. Right. What I did was I did it gradually <laughs> and sensibly and painlessly. That's how I did it. Well, listen, I'm, I'm always interested in, in how to do this because I've yet to meet a diet that I could follow that didn't allow me to have copious amounts of wine. And that seems to be my problem. Well, can I name the site? It, that I've, that yes, I've please do. Yeah, it's it's called ShowMe.fit. All right, and on there I state quite clearly that I don't want this to be a diet. This is not a diet. What this is about is taking steps every day into a healthier and better you, bit by bit. Because if you start a crazy diet and you don't think you can maintain it all your life, then it's simply not going to work. Right. And that's not how I did it. So you with the wine, what I, what we say on there is, right, just in a normal week, don't stop, just count all the units you're having, all right, add them all up. Now can you reduce them by one a week? Because that is all you need, just steps in the right direction. Listen, there is no way at the weekend I'm not having a pint of beer or a glass of wine. Right. Absolutely no way. What I've learned is... To be good most of the time is good enough. Yes, so you kind of allow yourself a little bit of freedom here and there. But do you also have you also done things like um, you know eat less in in terms of not not less frequently, but just eat less when you eat? No, 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 absolutely not. Right, what I've done is you join the site and it's got loads of recipes on there, filming of me recipes, and ninety percent of them just take thirty minutes. Okay. okay? And they're all healthy recipes. Breakfast, lunches you can take to work, and dinners. And what? And I've got a got a nutritionist called Cat, friend of mine, who's rubber stamped all of these recipes. Okay. And what we say on there is, do not be hungry. If you leave that table hungry, you're likely to want to go and snack on mm. things. Okay. So you fill yourself up with these good things. You have three meals a day. That way, you won't be reaching for no. No, no, honestly, there's no tricks in this. There's no, it's just honestly, step by step, moving yourself into a, into a healthier place. There's exercise routines on there you can do at home. 
with no equipment, 30 minutes. And what really, mate, and that was written by my PT, Danny. And what I've done is, as well, is I've brought in a mate of mine, Kev Dutton, who lectures at Oxford University. I know Kev. You know Kev Dutton? He's he's Mr. Psychopath, isn't he? That's it. He wrote the book on psychopaths. He did. He said I was one, by the way. You can tell him thanks a lot for that. You're right. It doesn't surprise me. Doesn't surprise me. Not with that tie. Doesn't surprise me at all. <laughs> very hard. So he, um, forgive me. So he has written the psychology on this as well, on how to get yourself into the right frame of mind, and also importantly, what to do when you when you slip up. Mm. So that that all of that, the, the 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 nutritionist, the psychologist, the exercise, the recipes written by my wife. <laughs> they're all they're all on this site. But it's a gradual thing. I don't want anybody to do anything radical. Okay. So there's nothing in there that says you can't eat any particular things or there's nothing sort of banned or anything like that. Sounds very libertarian, I must say, Greg. Yeah, because, listen, if if it was drastic and you can't maintain it, then it's not going to work. You might be able to maintain it for a week, a couple of weeks. You might lose a few pounds. Then you're going to put it all back on again. This is a gradual step-by-step guide that will make exercise and healthy living just become part of your everyday life that's what i'm that's the how i lost the weight that's how i've maintained the weight and that's what i'm trying to 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 get across is just to be a better you step by look listen the road from a to b the road from me four stone ago and now was not a straight line it was a wiggly line that went around a few good restaurants quite a few pubs Mm. and the odd kebab shop and take away burger. Okay, it's not a straight line. It's just if you have an off day, it's just getting back on the right. wagon and go and go a bit by bit. And I don't know how it works, but bit by bit, your body just starts craving the things that are good for it, mm. and it starts not wanting the things that that are bad for it. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right. I gave up smoking about sort of I, probably about three years ago now. Good uh, man. Uh, and I've always been told, and I, but I put on probably a couple of stone as a result, and I wasn't that small, you know, to begin with. Um, and that's part of the problem for me. So I'm, I'm definitely going to look at this and see whether it's something that I can do because, I, like, like you say, I could never really do a diet as such. I could never really um, sort of make that happen. But what would what would you say was the catalyst for you, Greg, to do this? Well, the first one was my doctor phoned me up and said, uh, get back over here and see me after a routine check. Uh, okay. Your cholesterol is out of control. You're going to have a heart attack. So right. that's enough of a wake-up call for anybody. Okay, so then I started to try and lose weight, and I'd have ups and downs. And then a couple of things happened uh, to me. Is is I met my lovely wife, who's much younger than me. Okay, now that, there, was, there was inspiration. And uh, then I met a, a gym instructor who wasn't oh, full I can, of I can follow. I can follow that advice. Right. Okay. Good. And then, well, I thought to myself, you know, she can have an old husband. She doesn't have to have a fat old husband, does she? <laughs> I'd, like, I'd like her. I'd like her to still fancy me. And now, of course, at fifty-five years old, fitter than I've ever been, I've got a fourteen-month-old baby boy, and I love my rugby, and I want to be able to kick a rugby ball yeah, around with him when, sure. he, when he's older. So, so there's more motivation. Then I met Danny Rye, who's, who's on the site, Show Me Fit. He was a really good instructor who didn't fill me full of jargon who just really motivated me. And then Dr. Kev, who you know, when I met him, that was three years ago, I said, said to him, I met him at a speaking engagement and he fascinated me and we became friends. And I started asking him questions because he is a top, top psychologist mm. in this country. I said, how is it that I know what to do, right? And yet I don't do it. Why is that? Yeah. Why is it that we all know we shouldn't do things? What, 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 am, I, what am I getting wrong? So we put that on the site as well. But he was he was amazing. Can I tell you what he said about slipping up? Yeah, go on. All right. So you want you want to enjoy your glass of wine at the weekend? So do I, right? And then when I did, and I'd spoke to a lot of mates of mine who would start these fitness regimes and these crazy diets full of motivation, and the minute they had like a bit of a bender, they chuck it all in and they think they've ruined it. Right. And here's what he said to me. He said, "Right, okay, no Wimbledon tennis champion ever won Wimbledon without dropping a point." If Federer knocked the ball out the court on his serve, he wouldn't chuck the game in, would he? Right. I thought, mate, you're absolutely right. Yeah. He said, if you have a bad day at work and the master chef set, if you're not brilliant, that doesn't mean you're not good at your job. It just means you've had a bad day. And the same is true of your exercise routine. The same is true of what you eat and drink. If you've gone out of wobbly, that's all you've had. It doesn't mean it's the end of the journey. Now, stuff like this, 
to me, really has an mm. impact. I think the man's a genius. Yeah, that's all great advice. Listen, I'm going to do a deal with you, Greg. I'm going to sign up to Show Me Dot Fit. Um, I want you to take a look at my. I do a little uh, podcast, bizarrely, uh, where I cook. It's called MG's Kitchen, and I do like you uh, cheap, cheap, relatively good food, uh, which you can cook quickly. I'd love you to have a look at it and honestly tell me what you think. It's on Twitter. If you think it's awful, well, tell me it's awful. But have a look. Well, at we'll it. do better than that. We'll do better than that. If if these are honestly quick and they are relatively inexpensive, I will pick out the healthy ones and put them on the Show Me Dot Fit site. What brilliant. about that? That's a brilliant idea. Fantastic. What's it called? MG Cooks. M- MG's Kitchen. I'll send. I'll, I'll, kitchen. I'll, I'll start following you. MG's Kitchen. Yeah. All right, old son. Fan- very All good. Right. Well done, Greg. Thank you very much indeed. What a what a fantastic man. Celebrity Chef, uh, Celebrity Master Chef is on tonight. You can catch the new uh, slimmed down version of Greg Wallace uh, later on on the television. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio.